What's up? What's happening? Craig Hoffman with you for Overtime tonight. Tonight's show is one short. We're only with you until about 7.15 when we give way to Caps Maple Leafs and two different. As many of you know, I was the beat reporter for this station for a number of years. And during that time, I was able to build up a lot of relationships as well as a knowledge base of what was happening within the Washington football organization. As the stories about the organizational dysfunction and workplace toxicity have been uncovered over the last few years, more than a few people have reached out on and off the record to provide context. That includes the folks you've heard right here on the radio, from former employees to Congressman Jerry Connolly, who was investigating the matter. Last week, Tom Kercheval reached out. Tom was a freelance editor in the video department for over a decade in Ashburn, and he was the one who turned the lewd tapes of cheerleaders made without their consent over to the Washington Post in 2020. He did that anonymously, but spoke out for the first time earlier this month to HBO. We talked for about 50 minutes last week in what was his first local interview. What you're about to hear is about the first 20 minutes of that conversation, lightly edited for time. The full interview will be available at thefandc.com. Afterwards, I want to share a story with you. He told me about his one ever interaction with Dan Snyder, and I'll give you my thoughts on the conversation as well. But for now, here's the first part of my conversation with Tom Kirchhoff. I became aware of it because I actually came in to an editing bay in 2010 and saw one of them being made and being edited by one of the editors uh, on staff there. Um, the, my, my responsibilities for the team, because I was a freelance guy, I would not work there during the day. I had my regular full-time job that I did during the day. And then occasionally during the week, I would come out to Redskins Park. And um, during the season, I would come out one to two days a week in the evenings, and I would edit some of the the, uh, television shows that they would run during the season. Um, And then during the summer, I would work for them on documentaries. Uh, I edited. So I would come out in the evenings, typically, and I would typically get there when the crew who was working during the day was about to leave for the day. And I would sort of take over somebody's editing station and, and do what I needed to do after they left. But quite often I would come in while people were still working and I would wait around until they finished what they were doing and they left. Um, So on this particular evening in 2010, I came into the editing area where I would be working that that night. And uh, the first thing I saw on the monitor there was a topless woman. And um, this gave me pause as it would anyone. I just said I didn't know what that was or why that would have been there. And... It was just me and the editor who were in that room, and I asked him immediately, what, what is this? What am I looking at here? And he told me, uh, these are outtakes of the recent cheerleader video shoot, and we were asked to put this together by the owner. It was just, uh, it, was, it was pretty shocking. So I asked him to repeat it. I said, so you're telling me that Dan Snyder ordered you to make this video for him? And he nodded yes. And just to be clear, the, the person that I, that I was speaking with wasn't telling me this um, as if he was proud of it. In fact, I picked up on that immediately. This wasn't something where he was saying, hey, look at this. Look what I've got. Wait, do you see this? Uh, I got the feeling that I may not have been meant to see that when I came in. Um, as I talked to him, I, got, I could tell that he didn't want to really talk about it much. He, uh, he scrolled through some of it, um, and I saw that it was... Uh, topless cheerleaders, basically, uh, and also 
moments of of cheerleaders clothed or in bathing suits, but in other risque type of poses. And um, he uh, showed me a bit, and he didn't want to talk much more about it. We the conversation was a little awkward. He shut down his project. Um, we ended up talking about what I was going to do. He left for the evening. So while I was there uh, by myself, um, I just couldn't stop thinking about this and what I had seen. So I typically would bring hard drives with me to work because I quite often needed to take footage that I would bring home and work on other projects uh, on the weekends or, or in my spare time. I found the video that he had just shown me. I also found another video um, that looked to me to be the same, even though it was different women in the video. And I copied both of them to a hard drive and took it home with me. And the reason that I did that was because I was so stunned that that this was happening and that this had happened and that the owner of the team would have asked for this. I was trying to wrap my head around it. And I really thought that somebody should be the caretaker of these um, because I knew it was wrong and I didn't want it to escape. Um, you know, I knew, I knew this file wouldn't last and I had the opportunity to take it. I did. I didn't have any, any idea what I was going to do with it. But the very first thing that I did when I got home that evening is I told my wife about it. And I said, you'll never believe what I saw being edited at Redskins Park tonight. And I told her what it was. Uh, I think the next day I may, may have shown her just a bit of it. And she was disgusted. And she said, well, what are you, you going to do with this? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I just felt like I needed to take it. And, um, you know, from my perspective, there was absolutely no motivation to take it because it was naked cheerleaders. You know, th this to me was not anything that was anything less than just wrong. You know, it felt wrong. It felt like a violation of people. Um, and anyone who would have any excitement by that, to me, has something wrong with them. So the reason I took it was because I just felt like it was something that I needed to have. I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And um, again, that was in 2010. And then it was about nine years later or so when I finally did release it to the Washington Post. So did you, obviously you had that conversation with your wife. Um, and I think a lot of people, even with what you just said, would go like, well, look, you took it and then you thought about what do I do with this? And ultimately you did nothing. So did you think about it? And, and also, you know, why, why ultimately did you decide to not do anything until uh, the, you turned it over to the post that many years later? Right. And, and that's a completely understandable question. And I totally get why anyone would wonder that and ask that. So it's really not that dissimilar. And, and I'm not comparing my situation with what so many of these women went through to report, you know, actual sexual harassment cases. I'm not trying to compare the two. I, I know it's not apples to apples, but there are some similarities in why someone would wait so long to report something like this. Um, for me, number one was being a freelance worker there. I wasn't there in the building day in and day out. So the, the only people who I really knew there were the people I worked with uh, in the video department. So I was completely sure that anybody who I would have reported this to, any male I would have reported this to, 
would have known about it. Um, and in knowing about it, I felt like they would probably want to not have this information, you know, out there, obviously, and, and would not be happy that I knew about it. Um, number two, some of the people who I worked there with there, I was, I was really, and this is probably one of the main reasons, is that I was really concerned that some of my friends, to be honest, um, might be involved, might get in trouble for this. You know, and I'm talking about the editor who I walked in on, who I wouldn't say was a friend, but he was someone who I was a colleague. And by, and by the way, at the time, he was just a young kid out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to absolve anyone for whatever role they may have had in any of this. But for me, the main person who was responsible for this, and I believe this to this day, uh, and certainly believed the editor when he told me this, absolutely no reason for him to lie about it, was, was Dan Snyder. So I wanted to make sure that if I ever released this, um, it would be done in a way where I felt like the person responsible for this, who I believe to be Dan Snyder, would be the one who would be held accountable. And I will also say that at the time that this happened, uh, I had a young family. I had a two-year-old son and another son on the way. And the extra money from this, this job was important to our family. And I will be honest about that, that that was something that I had to consider too. I really felt like if I did bring this forward, it, it probably would jeopardize that job for me, which I loved. Yeah, I loved working for the team. I loved working on these things. So it was something I wrestled with. And uh, I, you know, I knew it was there. I knew I still had it. I wasn't getting rid of it. Never shared it with anyone beyond my wife. Never, never sent it to anyone. Um, maybe mentioned it its existence to a couple friends, but absolutely never shared it. Um, So around 2018, the story broke in the New York Times about the Washington cheerleaders in, Mm. uh, I believe it was Costa Rica. That really brought everything back to the forefront for me. And that that story really bothered me because I felt like it aligned so much with what I had seen, you know, the cheerleaders being abused and, and exploited. And uh, I believed their story that when I read it completely. And when it happened, I really felt like, you know, I, I remember that there were statements from the team of distancing themselves from it. And I just thought it was it just was so hypocritical to me because I felt like I, I don't know Dennis Green. I don't know what he what he had to do with that. But I also felt like the situation with the team starts at the top in any organization. And I always believed that you know, Dan Snyder was ultimately responsible for these things happening. So that really bothered me in 2018. And I started to think about, I should probably think about, number one, making sure I still have these videos because they've been stored away somewhere. And um, number two, start thinking about what I'm going to do with them. Uh, and yet still, I didn't work up the the courage or the nerve because of these other things that I had already meant, have already mentioned to release it. Um, but it, it was much closer than it had been. And then in 2020 was when sort of the dam broke and the first post story came out with Emily Applegate. And there were so many women there who were uh, sharing their stories of, of the culture there and the abuse they dealt with on a daily basis. Um, and that's when I, I just, I couldn't sit back anymore. And I felt like I had something to contribute to the story uh, on behalf of these women and um, I went back, I found the videos, I still had them, and I reached out to Will Hobson and shared them with him. 
Did you think about contacting the cheerleaders themselves, the head of the cheerleading program at the time, anybody kind of on the team? Um, or was that, that not feasible for any number of reasons? Uh, I didn't really at the time. Um, I, I won't go so far as to say it was not feasible, but it was something that never really entered my mind at the time. Um, you know, I think part of it too was that there really were no there were no stories at the time related to Dan Snyder and that toxic workplace environment. Really, at that point, so I also didn't feel like I, I didn't feel confident that uh, that it would be believed. Number one, because I I had been told, you know. To be fair, I had been told secondhand this from the editor. Um, I did not see Dan Snyder ask for this. I did not see, um, he didn't say any, I never heard him say anything about it. No one ever told me about it, but the editor who said we were asked to make this for the owner. Um, so I wasn't confident that it would be something that would even be believed. Um, so yeah, at the time, just with the, the lack of a networking circle that I really had there, because of my freelance basis, I just never really thought or felt comfortable enough to see, search out the the head of the cheerleaders and tell them what was going on and and share it with them. Sure. Um, sure. So yeah, so that that came later. Understandable. Um, and then last but not least, there's been extensive reporting about how poor the HR structure was within the organization. Uh, oftentimes, one single, extremely junior level person who had absolutely no power. And you know, if you report to them, they are winding up going to the same people that you didn't want to report this to directly because, as you said, they probably knew they were in, a part of this. So, uh, my my final question, kind of along this front, would be: if this was an organization that took human resources seriously that took these types of reporting systems seriously had the systems in place what would you have liked to have been able to do at the time well that's a great point because that also brings up another feeling that i always had there ever since i began working there in fact and i'll answer your question here but i just to give some context um after my first freelance year of working there there was an opportunity for me to work for the team full time and if, if that had been presented to me at the very beginning, I would have jumped at it. Um, but after being there for a year and witnessing from the outside the, the feeling of being in that building, which was not good, um, it was a place from the very beginning that I felt was just a, an environment I would never want to be in full time. Uh, people seemed to, to not be just... Just basically, and I know this is a huge, you know, wide net I'm casting. So this is not obviously going to apply to every person there, but just the the overall feeling that I got was a place where people, you know, they would look down, they would never say hello, they were quick to to yell at someone. I overheard many arguments and and yelling and screaming, and um, it was a very difficult. It, it looked to be a very difficult place to work. Um, and then just in talking with some of the colleagues who were did work there full time, who I had relationships with, um, I never at all had the feeling that this would be a place that would be conducive for me to present, or for anyone, not just me, to present a workplace problem uh, that would be adequately dealt with. So when I read the reports of there being, you know, no HR there and women feeling like they had nowhere to turn for their complaints, that all made total sense to me because that was always 
the opinion or the feeling that I that I had. In fact, I remember one night walking in back in 2006, I guess it was. So, yeah, I guess it must have been my first year there. I was walking into the to the facility and the door was locked and I had didn't have a card at the time, so I had to get someone to open the door and it had happened a couple times and so often you know, nobody would ever bother. You'd really, you know, have to really <laughs> make yourself known. Somebody opened the door for me and it was Mark Brunel. And he was, he was like, Hey, how you doing? Come in. And that, and just that simple act of courtesy, which, which you would expect really from anyone was so out of place there that it just felt like, like this guy had done something amazing, which really all he had done was just gone out of his way to open a door for me. And that was, and, and the place was so pervasive with, with just that heavy negative feeling that just that simple thing felt like a huge act. So I, I'm not at all surprised that, uh, you know, that, that these things didn't exist for, for the full-time staff. So, so uh, you know, what, I, what would have been great would have been to have a feeling there that it was a family-related type of environment, that everybody was in it for each other. They were, they were working for the team. They were there to help each other. They were there to support each other. And that if there was a problem, you had a, a clear person that you could go to who you knew and believed was going to do the right thing and stick up for you and and uh, and handle something like what I saw, but I never felt like that existed. So that was another reason that I never really felt comfortable bringing that forward. You've said that you believed the person who told you that they were making the video for the owner, um, because I, I think there, there's some people who would be like, "Oh, you you caught a, a young editor dipping through footage that that he didn't belong in." Um, why why do you believe him? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've heard that story too. Okay. So it's completely ridiculous for anyone to think that a young editor just out of college trying to make a name for himself in the, in this career. And this was his start would actually in the facility itself in an editing bay where anyone could walk into, which I did would sit there and go through um, outtakes to find and edit them in that high, high-paced, fast-paced environment where he had so many other things, I'm sure, to do. But not only that, but this is another interesting thing about the videos. They were all, I found two, okay? And I initially thought they were both from 2010 because they were both edited in exactly the same way. And they were both edited to the same three songs. And those were Mysterious Ways by U2, uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash by The Rolling Stones, and Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. And I later found out that one of these videos was from 2008 when this editor who I walked in on was not even working for the team. And right. the other one was from 2010 when he was working. So, um, but even that aside, you know, old U2, Rolling Stones, and uh, Aerosmith were, I'm sure, not the music of uh, young 20-somethings even back in 2010. And certainly uh, no one's going to sit there, you know, if they wanted those outtakes they would have just grabbed the outtakes and secretly put them on a drive and taken them. They wouldn't have sat there um, for hours and actually edited a pro produced piece to music. Um, so yeah, that, that absolutely no chance. It's just some of my interview with Tom Kirchival, who, as you heard, turned the discovered and, and ultimately after nearly a decade, turned the videos over to him, the Washington Post, as well as NFL investigators. 
Um, we talked for another 30 minutes uh, about the NFL's role in all of this. And I also asked Tom if he ever had any interactions himself with Dan Snyder. That story, his one ever interaction with Dan Snyder, which actually I think really well summarizes what this story is all about, is next. I'm Craig Hoffman. This is Overtime on The Fan. Last five minutes overtime. It's an express segment here brought to you by the 95 Express Lanes, expresslanes.com. Expect major overnight road work delays on I-95 southbounds, regular lanes near Fredericksburg, Virginia. Exit 136 from March 7th through March 10th. Bypass the delays by rerouting your travel. Visit expresslanes.com for current road closure information. Craig Hoffman with you again tonight for overtime. Uh, Tom Kirchival's interview with me, the, the meat of the show tonight. And I wanted to play one more clip for you because I thought it was a nice summation of everything that's happened and kind of who Dan Snyder is from my understanding of reporting on him for at this point over a half a decade. This is a man who, like many other powerful and especially rich men, uh, enjoy the fact that they have power. I think Dan himself is someone who didn't have a lot of power uh, growing up, like social you know, power to wield. And so he's became a rich person who owns stuff uh he was someone who's like let me see what i can get away with and he did and that includes just you know the type of things that he's accused of uh currently and also uh just being a general uh terrible person to work for and tom was working on a project for dan uh, or with someone else for dan and that actually led to his only interaction ever with dan snyder I asked him have you ever had any interactions with dan and this is the story that tom told me I had one interaction with Dan Snyder, and it was from a distance. And it actually wasn't really an interaction as much as it was me observing him. But Dan Snyder was just about to buy Dick Clark Productions. And he wanted someone to put together a, a sizzle reel of the many shows that Dick Clark Productions put together. So I was asked to come in in the evening and work with this guy and put this reel together. And he was basically telling me what clips to use and that kind of thing. I later found out that one of the reasons I was chosen to do this was because no one else wanted to, to do these types of jobs, you know, to, to because they didn't want to run into Dan Snyder or have that possibility. So I was working with this guy for a long time, well into the evening. It was just kept going and going and going. It was very frustrating. And then all of a sudden, Dan Snyder walks into our editing booth and he's wearing like a sweat jacket or something and a couple guys with him. And he looked at me. And I could tell that nothing registered in his eyes, like, I have no idea who you are. So he immediately just looked away, and then he proceeded to just lay into this guy I was with, like, nothing I had ever heard. Um, just, where the F are you? Were you? I've been trying to effing reach you all effing night. Where the... I mean, screaming at the guy. And it, it turned out that he was trying to reach him on his cell phone, and the guy's cell phone had been turned off. And I remember just sitting there watching it and thinking wow, he really is like that. You know, if, if, I, if I had to write that, the script or if, uh, was reading, the, you know, the, the descriptions, or if I saw that written in a script, I would think, well, you're kind of, you got to be exaggerating, don't you? But it wasn't. It wasn't an exaggeration. <laughs> he just like zero to, to 70 just, just destroyed this guy. And the guy was humiliated. And when Dan Snyder walked away, the guy just looked at me sheepishly and just said, 
as you can see, it's very important to keep your cell phones turned on around here all the time. And, um, you know, that was the only, only time I ever saw Dan Snyder. And it, it lived up to a lot of the things that I had heard as far as what kind of a person and boss he is. And uh, I kind of laughed, to be honest with you, as it was happening, because I was just like, wow, I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe that's, that's real. So the things they say are true. These stories in general, and I've said this a bunch over the course of reporting on this, um, and it, it's worth repeating, um, although I feel like the, if you get it, you get it, and if you don't, you don't. But maybe, I don't know, maybe this is new for, for some of you. Um, these stories are about one thing, always. They're not about money, they're not about sex, they're not about anything other than power. And Dan Snyder was and is a man who likes to push the boundaries of his power because it makes him feel something. And those with power can use their power for good or they can use it for whatever the hell Daniel Snyder is using his power for. And we continually get to see how many people he's hurt along the way. And this is just more evidence that that hurt has happened. Uh, full interview will be up eventually on thefandc.com. My name is Greg Hoffman. Enjoy the Caps game. See ya.